So this morning we're still, we'll be in John chapter 1. We'll be in John chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of different sections here. We're going to kind of tie them together a bit here today. But John chapter 1. So this Christmas season, we are seeking to prepare ourselves for the celebration of Jesus' birth by looking at the Gospel of John, primarily chapter 1. And today we're looking at some very specific gifts that came with Jesus when he entered the world that first Christmas so many years ago. There are really two specific gifts that we're going to be focusing on today, and they're interrelated. The first is the gift of adoption. And in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, this section tells us that if we receive and believe in Jesus, we are given the right to become children of God. Verse 12, this is not an action of our doing, as the very next verse makes it clear, but rather a result of the will of God. Verse 13, imagine we are called children of God. And I kind of alluded to this with the passage we read earlier. We are given a relationship with God, not simply as created beings or distant subjects, but we have the relationship of a child with their father. And for those that perhaps have unhealthy relationships or poor relationships with their parents, God isn't like that. This is the perfect relationship the way it was supposed to be. So let's start by looking at John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Look at verses 9 through 13 first, and then we're going to jump down and look at a couple other verses later on. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here in verses 9 through 13, we have the gift of adoption. The gift of adoption. Now, first, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 here. And here we see the light rejected. The light rejected. Now, that opening line there, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, I believe that verse 9 is more directly connected to verse 8 than it is to verse 10. But it gives a good lead in to verse 10. Verses 6 to 8 actually give the introduction of John the Baptist as the witness of Jesus, the true light. And that is then elaborated on in verse 9. Jesus, the true light that had come into the world, and he gives light to every man, to everyone. So grammatically, the phrase coming into this world could refer to lights or every man. The King James takes it to be with every man, but that doesn't really make sense with what John is getting at in this passage as he sets up themes that run through the rest of the book about life and light. I think it's better to link this to light. 
And this makes a better connection to verse 10. Now, I don't think it's connected directly to verse 10. It, 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 it finishes up that section of verses 6 to 8. Um, but it, it gives that, that link to verse 10. The ESV Bible takes it this way and renders the verse this way. First, uh, John 1, 9 in the ESV. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So now as we, we move on, we kind of get this idea of light. We see that jump into verse 10 here. We move on. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Though the light of the world had entered the world through the incarnation, generally he was unrecognized by the world. The creator had entered the world. He had come into his creation, but was not recognized by the world. Now the word world here is cosmos. You can hear the word cosmos from there. Uh, this, this word generally refers to the world system as in the human race lost in sin and blinded to the light. So it's a reference to everyone. And this blindness to the light is seen even more distinctly in the next verse, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, verse 11 is not repeating anything in verse 10, but it makes a very particular statement from a more general one. Verse 10, it says, The light was in the world, and the world, though made by him, did not recognize him, did not know him. Verse 11 narrows it down further. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. He came to his own. The, pro, this, um, the first pronoun of his, his own, is assumed in both parts of this verse. Uh, sorry, that pronoun his, as you read it in the English, the his is assumed in both parts of this verse. The first uh, and the next use of it has a slightly different meaning than the first. So the first part of the verse, he came to his own. This first usage of that adjective of own is the idea of own home or own place. It is used this way in John 19, verse 27, when John took Mary into his own home to care for her. When Jesus on the cross looked at him and said, Behold your mother, and he took her to his own. Home is assumed, but that's, that's the idea the adjective is bringing to it. This, ver this is used that same way in Acts 21, verse 6, where the disciples in Tyre, in the city of Tyre, returned to their homes as Paul and company continued to make their way to Jerusalem. But that's not how it's being used in the second half of the verse. The second use of this word is different, and it refers to his own people. 
and his own did not receive him. Christ came into the land of Israel to the Jewish people. He came to his own. The land God led the children of Israel to from Egypt and to his own people, the chosen people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation that had received direct revelation from God time and again, but often the message and testimony of God's messengers was ignored. Of all people, the nation should have accepted Jesus, but they sought his crucifixion. Though his own did not receive him, there were those that did. And this takes us into verses 12 and 13. The light received. The light received. But as many as received him. This is explained by the ending phrase of the verse, to those who believe in his name. So this opening section, but as many as received him, received is further explained by the end of the verse. If you want the grammatical term, the end of the verse, to those who believe in him, is an apposition to the first part of the verse, those who received him. Okay, that's the technical grammatical term. It's renaming, it's restating it in a slightly different way. But as many as received him, so it is to those who believe in his name. Well, those, those who believe on his name or in his name, these are the ones that recognized Jesus as sent by the Father, fulfilling prophecies and accepted his message as from God and responded positively or favorably to him. And this uh, idea here to, to believe in This is not just mental assent or intellectual assent or understanding, but it also involves personal commitment. One author explains it like this. Those who received him accepted Christ's message about his person and the purpose of his ministry and entrusted themselves to him. Now, the verse says that those who believe in his name. The use of name here is a common expression to refer to the entire person, even to what the person stands for or represents. That's not unfamiliar to us. That's true in our culture. This is why advertisers use celebrities to be spokespeople for their products. This is why political candidates approve TV and radio commercials that support their platform or even belittle their opponent. We trust the person, ergo, we trust the name. And it's not just celebrities and politicians that do this, but businesses too. Good housekeeping. The Better Business Bureau. We trust these names. Here's one that's a little closer to home. Regular Baptist Press. We trust the name. 
because we know what it stands for. So now that we've talked about receiving, believing in him, we need to talk about the rest of verse 12 Him, 12 here. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Those that received the word, that believed in Jesus and have, beco- have become children of God. The word right there in the verse can be translated authority. And some translations do this. That is because by nature, no human can be a child of God. It is only through receiving Jesus that this right is given to a person. And that right comes delegated to us through Jesus. The idea of children here carries on into the, into the next verse, verse 13. Those who were born. Now verse 13 here looks forward to a fuller discussion of the new birth in chapter 3. You'll remember Nicodemus coming at night and Jesus says, you have to be born again. How do I be born again? How do, do I crawl back? Do I climb back into my mother to be born again? And there's a fuller explanation of this. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read where Jesus is explaining this to Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirits. This is not the experience of all people, but only those that have placed their faith in the eternal word. This is not the product of natural birth in any way, but of God's work. And and that's what the rest of the verse is talking about. So that's this next section with all the negatives in there. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. He's negating everything else of natural birth here to become children of God. He's saying not of blood. This relationship with God doesn't come through physical descent or generational descent. Not of blood. You can't be born a Christian into the church. You can't, just because, we'll put it back in, in first century Israel, you can't be born into Israel and be a child of God. You have to believe in the Messiah. Yes, Israel is God's chosen people, and he will bring the nation to salvation. But when the Messiah was there and he was giving these things, it wasn't a matter of, well, I'm a son of Abraham. That's nice. You're still a sinner. So he's saying it's not of blood. There's no physical descent, no generational descent. Everyone has to make the choice to believe in Jesus. He also says it's not of the will of the flesh. It doesn't come through the sensual desires that come with physical reproduction, the will of the flesh. That doesn't do anything to give us this relationship with God. 
And the last section here, nor of the will of man. It doesn't come from the action of a man in the planning or executing of procreation. That's got nothing to do with becoming a child of God. None of these can do that. John finishes the verse with, but of God. The only way to become a child of God is through the direct action of God. Uh, One author says it this way, God alone can perform this feat. And he had offered to provide new birth to all who receive the revelation given by his son and entrust themselves to him for eternal life. So this first gift that we see here is, is by, in, by believing in Jesus, we can receive the gift of adoption into God's family, to be a child of God. The next gift that we are told about is found a little bit later in the chapter. We're going to jump down to verse 29 through 34. Now in this section, John the Baptist gives the t- a title to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. This language, like the tabernacle language of, of the previous section, of an earlier section, links the work of Jesus to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So, jumping down to... Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So in verses 29 to 34, we see the gift of forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness. This section is part of the main narrative of John's gospel and is a little ways into John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. In verses 19 to 28, the baptizer answers questions about himself from a delegation uh, from the Sanhedrin, which includes some Pharisees. In that section, he very specifically says, I am not the Messiah. But quotes Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40, I believe, concerning himself as an answer, as the one who goes before to make the way straight, to prepare the nation for the coming king. Now in verses 29 through 30, we're going to look at here first. Verses 29 and 30, we see the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Now, verse 29 starts off with the next day. If we were to back up in that little bit of context I just gave, verses 19 to to 28 seems to be 
the previous day, where he's talking with this delegation from the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem and even maybe some local Pharisees. Step into verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him, coming toward him. So this is the following day, following John's discussion with that delegation from the Sanhedrin. Now we see that John sees Jesus here in this verse. And we should understand that this section with John's proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God is sometime after Jesus's baptism. John likely hasn't seen Jesus since then as the other gospels tell us that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness immediately following his baptism. And while in the wilderness, he has the temptations. And he spent at least 40 days in the wilderness. There is nothing in John chapter 1 that indicates Jesus' baptism happens in this chapter. John, John the Baptist's testimony is well after that point. So he sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, likely to a, a, a crowd, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Seeing Jesus coming toward him, he identifies him to a crowd, probably likely a, a general crowd that had come to hear him speak. Think how shocking or even confusing the statement would have been to those who first heard it from John's lips. Behold, the Lamb of God. Those of us that have grown up in the church or have been in church a long time, we're accustomed to that title, Lamb of God. But to, for John to first say that, those first listening to him, what is he talking about? Maybe, or if they had an inclination, they may have been kind of shocked. They may have been confused. Now, there have been several attempts to identify what the background of this phrase was and how John, was John the Baptist was trying to use it. Some have tried to link this back to one or more of the varying sacrifices of the Mosaic Law. And this seems to be a pretty obvious uh, attempt and is certainly understandable to, for that, uh, to make that link. However, if this is a Levitical connection, if this is a Mosaic law sacrifice connection, then the thought may be of a sin sacrifice since the lamb was taking away the sin. Though the lamb was not the characteristic animal of the sin sacrifice. Even in the Great Day of Atonement, there was a goat, a scapegoat, carried the sins away from the, from the camp, and a goat was sacrificed. Some argue that it may have been near Passover season during this time, so the Passover lamb was the intended reference here. That's entirely possible. Um, John is the son of a priest, so he would have had a lot of these, he would have understood a lot of these sacrifices and could have pulled on any of them. 
That's entirely possible. Others think that the reference may go back to the lamb Abraham told Isaac that God would provide, Genesis 22.8. Isaac and Abraham are walking towards the mountain and he says, Father, we have the fire, we have the knife, but we don't have the lamb. And he says, God will provide the lamb. Though the, uh, the thought here, though, is that Abraham was offering a burnt offering, the full animal, and not necessarily a sin offering. So there's some questions about both of those. Others think it likely that John had in mind the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, where the Lord's servant is led as a lamb to the slaughter and made himself an offering for sin, verses 7 and 10 of Isaiah 53. While we can't really know for sure, I tend to agree with the thought that that John is pulling from the Isaiah passage, Um, especially since he quoted an earlier part of Isaiah the day before. It wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been um, difficult for him, especially as a son of a priest who definitely would have gone through Torah school. He would have known the prophecies of of Isaiah. And he certainly could have brought this out if he would have understood at this point who Jesus was. John says that this lamb takes away sin. This is more than any animal sacrifice could have done, even within the Mosaic law. John goes further to establish whose sin is being taken away. He says to take away the sins of the world. This word again is cosmos that we just talked about. The word, the world, as the entire world population. And this chord is struck again throughout the gospel. John 3, 16 and 17. John 4, 42. Chapter 6, verse 51. And again in 1 John, chapter 2, verse 2. And chapter 4, verse 14. John continues his testimony and says, This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, last week, I mistakenly linked verse 15 to verse 27. Um, I should have linked verse 15 to verse 30 because it's practically a direct quote. So we'll get that out of the way. Now, previously, John had to speak of the coming Messiah in more general terms. But now he is able to be specific, and he points to Jesus and says, there is the Lamb of God. He is the one who came after me, who was before, preferred before me because he was before me. And this is reflected further on in verse 31, which is likely part of this quotation of, uh, of John the Baptist's testimony. I've split them up a little bit here. I kind of link 31 with the rest of the section. Uh, properly, it should probably be up here with 29 and 30, but 
I've got it down in the next section. So let's move on here, verses 31 through 34. John's testimony. John's testimony, verses 31 to 34. Verse 31, he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. While this verse could be connected to the previous verse, and I think it should be more specifically, I have it here as John's, with John's testimony. John said that he didn't know who the Messiah was. He only knew that he was to make the way straight, to call the nation to repentance, and therefore baptize with water as a sign of that repentance in preparation for the Messiah. This was to prepare the nation for the Messiah. He says, I saw, the, as we move on, he says, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained on him. John's testimony of Jesus' baptism is here in verse 32. Again, an indication that the baptism of Jesus isn't happening anywhere in chapter one of John. It's happened way before we're getting into this conversation. And here in verse 32, John says that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and remain on him. Well, why was this an issue for John's testimony? Why was this important for him to put it in here? Well, that takes us in the verse 33. He says, I did not know him. Again, he says he didn't know who the Messiah was going to be, but that he was aware of a sign that he should look for. He says, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John may or may not have known Jesus personally before the baptism. They may have known of each other as they were likely cousins to one degree or another through Mary and Elizabeth. But it appears that there was no divine indication to John about Jesus before his baptism. John was also likely aware of passages indicating that the Messiah would be especially indwelt by the Spirit. Passages like Isaiah 11, 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Or Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. John also knew that the Messiah, being specially indwelt, would be able to minister the spirit to others. Hence, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit thus bringing a real spiritual transformation to those individuals, something that John's baptism could only symbolize. And as we get into verse 34, he says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. I think this is also likely a reference back to uh, Jesus' baptism, where he probably, John heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son. 
John's public witness of Jesus, at least in this instance, ended by him identifying Jesus as God's son. John recognized that that the Messiah was much more than a political ruler, but was the divine king. Even before Jesus' public ministry began, John the Baptist recognized Jesus' redemptive work, his pre-existence, and his unique relationship with the eternal Father. So what did we see here in these verses today? In verses 9 to 13, we see the first gift that Jesus brought with him was the gift of adoption that comes through Jesus. Only through believing in Jesus are we able to become children of God and brought into his family. And not only as children of God, but as the passage that we read this morning, Romans 8, tells us that we are co-heirs with Jesus, because that adoption we had was one of full sonship, not just in the family, but with all the rights and privileges awarded to the named heir of the father. In verses 29 to 34, we see that the second gift is really twofold. The gift of forgiveness from sins and the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This title, Lamb of God, is unique to the Apostle John's writings, here and in Revelation, though a different word for lamb is used. But this title is used specifically by the Apostle John. Jesus was the sacrifice, the propitiation to appease the holiness of God, to bring forgiveness of sins and a new life, eternal life. And when we believe, we receive the other part of this gift. We receive the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The Spirit's work at salvation enacts this new life, transforming our sinful, spiritually dead lives into new creations living for Christ. And these gifts only become ours when we acknowledge and repent of our sins, when we believe in and call on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. If there are some here who haven't yet come to a place where you have done this, I urge you to do this today. You know what? Anyone under the age of 20, look at me. If you have never come to a place where you know you're a sinner, Jesus died for your sins, and you want that forgiveness, now is the time to do that. Especially at this time as we're celebrating Christmas. Look at me. No gift you give or get will ever compare and that goes for all of us no gift we give or get or receive this year will ever or could ever compare 
to these gifts from the Father that Jesus brought to us. So little ones, if you haven't, talk to a parent, talk to me, talk to someone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we're able to look at your word and to recognize these truths in your word, to recognize the testimony of John the Baptist, that you gave him the sign that he needed to know to proclaim that Jesus is God the Son, and that he came to redeem people to take away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son to come even as an infant and to grow up as the child in the manger was the lamb on the cross. We thank you that through Jesus, we have the gift of adoption, that we have the right to be called children of God. And as Paul says in in other passages, to be sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. But that also through Jesus coming, we have the forgiveness of sins. And we have the indwelling spirit. We have the spirit staying with us that you are always present with us. But we have you, we have the spirit indwelling us in such a special and unique way now. And we thank you for these gifts. Father, I pray for those here that may not have trusted Christ as Savior yet. I think especially of the young ones. Father, I pray that this time may not just be one of lights and presence and and receiving things, getting things, but I pray that we would make an impact with them. Father, that you would soften their hearts to realize that they need to accept the greatest gift and accept Jesus as Savior. Father, I thank you for this time that we are able to gather and to study your word. Help us now as we depart. In Christ's name I pray, amen.